Would you turn with me to James chapter 5, the last chapter of James? If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in some of the chairs in front of you, and we would love for you to take one of those and own it if you don't have a Bible. We'd love for you to put your name in it and make that your own. That would be a blessing for us to give that to you. But we're in James chapter 5. It's towards the back of the Bible after the book of Hebrews. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this, this first paragraph This unique paragraph beginning the last chapter of James. So let's let's go to God. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning to glorify you. Blessed be your name. Oh God, I pray that from our heart, in the name of Jesus, we gave thanks to you as we took communion. I pray that in your name, we will Sit and listen. In your name, we will listen to obey. In your name, you will convict us. In your name, you will change us. And in your name, we will walk. And in your name, we will live. And Oh God, make your son's name the rejoicing of our hearts. I pray that the name of Jesus of which it means that we as lowly sinners were rescued by a worthy Savior who is, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Oh, Father, I pray that in His name You would help us this morning. You would help this church to be built up in its most holy faith. I pray that we would walk together in Christian love and in unity. We would be careful to obey your word and study your truths so that we would know you. I pray that we would love the next generation for your glory and we would so live lives, spend our dollars and our hours and our hobbies and everything else in such a way that they see what is most valuable in our lives and it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for kids and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I pray for parents and grandparents in this room. I pray for singled singles and I pray for widows and do those that are in different circumstances that are in pain or this morning in great joy and pleasure. I pray that we would rejoice with each other and we would grieve with each other. We would care for one another. Oh God, would you do in us what we could never do? Make us a communed people together, communing with you, communing with each other, true fellowship. Make us a family you can't, we make different people who have different personalities and different viewpoints and different perspectives and different tastes and different preferences and different traditions. And I pray that the world will look on and be amazed because what unites us is not any of those different things, but Jesus Christ and the gospel transforming our lives. God, there might be some in this room that are not yet a Christian. They're not truly saved. They've never truly surrendered their life and have given themselves to you and accepted your free gift. And I pray they would do this today because we don't know if they'll have tomorrow. God, I pray that you 
would save people in our lives that are not here right now, but we're praying for distant relatives or close relatives and neighbors and coworkers and friends in school. God, this morning, I pray that you'd be with the other churches in our community. There's so many. And I pray that they would be obedient and faithful and be used by you. And I pray that they would grow because it's your spirit working. I pray that you would bless the Village Church in Byron right now as they meet, and First Baptist in Fenton as they meet, and First Baptist in Holly, and Eastgate in Burton, and Flint's, the city churches in the Flint area, the churches in Flushing, and Grand, just across our state. Minister to them. God, thank you for the first baptism at Bethlehem and Yonde for the first time in their history of their church as they had their one-year anniversary this morning. God, be with the churches in Yondea, Cameroon, and I pray that you would bring great blessing and faithfulness in their pastors and families and in every member of the church. Oh God, help us to be faithful partners to them. Now minister to us through your word in a special way. I need your help, so does everyone listening, so that we do not waste this time. Waste your word. Let it, may we not be poor stewards of this treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you rich? Doesn't sound like a polite question if it wasn't rhetorical, right? If I demanded an answer, are you rich? What does God have to say to the rich? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Or Paul wrote to the church, or to Timothy for the church, and he said, As for the rich in this age, this present age, and he gave them instructions, charged them not to be proud or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasures for a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is real life. As to the rich in this present age, are you rich in this present age? I will say this, compared to most people in other countries or in the history of the world, even those in poverty in this country have their needs met. They don't starve. They have clothes. They have shelter if they want, want it. And compared to most places in the world, they are rich in comparison. We have so much more than so many people. I experienced that so vividly this summer in Cameroon. We have things including TV packages, whether they be online or dish or cable, multiple vehicles. In many families, it's a hardship if we only have one vehicle. Multiple toys that are expensive with the sole purpose of play, entertainment, and leisure. We have second homes. We have second freezers and refrigerators 
and multiple kitchens and bathrooms and hot tubs and pools and bikes and motorcycles and guns and more guns and more guns. <laughs> I'm not preaching at you, brothers. I'm preaching at all of us. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We, I'm just saying we have more books than we could ask for. I do. More access to music and movies, new and old, all at the click of a button. We have food that is easy to access, restaurants and supermarkets that are amazing in compared to the history of the world. And in compared to some countries, they would say, I never could imagine that what I saw on TV is real. I mean, I spend with a family of seven probably more money on a grocery run at Sam's Club, and we usually do multiple of those in a month, than many pastors in Cameroon make in an entire month to care for their entire family. So what if I got up and said to a congregation in America, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. It's kind of bold. Well, that's what James does as he ends this letter. Look with me at the first six verses of James chapter 5. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now we're going to see in a couple weeks when we get back to this passage, he's going to then say to other brothers, but be patient and wait for the Lord. What's going on in this, this dark, can I say, passage? I mean, six verses of James begins and says, Woe to you, you now you who are rich, weep and howl. It, it, it's what it sounds you know what it sounds to be in agony? Have you heard agony from your children or from a spouse or for somebody? Real agony. And that's what he's saying. Howl for miseries that are coming to you. And then in the next five verses, he lays out the folly of their ways and the indictment of against them because of how they have handled their riches. James, what's he doing here? I believe that on one side, you have a church that he's writing to, many of whom are poor and have been trampled on. In chapter 2, he says, don't you know that it is you who are poor that have, he has made rich in faith? 
but, and they've been trampled by these landowners or merchants that have treated them and exploited them bad and been selfish and hoarded. And he wants to encourage them. And as, as Calvin says, he wants to encourage them that they might not envy their fortune, the fortune of the rich, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of those wrongs that are suffered and that they may calm and resign their minds and hearts before God. In one sense, he's wanting to comfort those who have been exploited by the rich, saying, trust in God, their misery is coming. This language rings with Old Testament, like Amos chapter 5, 7, where they talk about woe to the people who are full. This is Ezekiel language to woe to you shepherds who have been feeding yourself and exploiting your sheep. And so on one side, it is meant for those who have been victims and who have been in poor and those who are trusting in God to know, okay, trust in the Lord. Their day is coming. I cling to the Lord God. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. But there is, we, we can't help but see in this passage and especially read into our context as Americans who have so much abundance in comparison to even James's day, and definitely compared to many countries of the world, I know that there are some in great need in this room, and so I don't mean everyone, but in comparison, so much of what we have, I believe this passage would have us who have professed our faith in Jesus Christ take note of these condemnations against the rich, and to take an inventory into our own lives and hearts based on how we're using our riches. To all who are Christians, who find themselves far too much like these people condemned in these verses, James 5 is a call to us to humble ourselves before God and to reorganize based on God's grace the way we view our wealth. What must we do as Americans? What must we do as Americans who have been given so much? So what's going on in this text? Let me just walk you through it real quickly. James 5.1 basically is a pronouncement of doom to the rich. It's a, it, it doesn't say to those who are rich, but, but ungodly rich. He just says to those who are rich. So... What's he mean here? He says, he says, doom is upon you. Your woe to you, you should weep and howl because that's appropriate because misery not might come to you, it is coming upon you. And why this judgment? And before I say anything more, I say there is going to be great misery against all those who turn away and find their treasure in something other than God through Jesus Christ. There will be unfathomable misery and torment. The Bible describes, and this verse alludes to, there will be great judgment and condemnation on every soul who finds their treasure here and now. And that's where their heart is. Thankfully, God comes in and does 
a transformative work in people who were inclined to find treasure in everything else but Jesus. But he says, there is great misery. So what are the indictments? He gives, I'm going to say at least three. I'm going to, there's probably more than this. We could break them up into more specific categories. But I'm going to give you three indictments of the wealthy. There's serious temptations to any one of us. Wealthy can mean I have all my needs met and, and more. Maybe not a lot more, not as much as the person across the road, and not as many as some in this church, and I'm sure it, it, I know it varies, but we have more than we need. Three indictments, he says. Verse, first of all, he says, the rich selfishly hoard their wealth. Look at verses two and three. The rich selfishly hoard their wealth. Beware, rich people. Horrible judgment will come to you because you have selfishly been hoarding your wealth. You, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Do you see how he's, he's right now, he's in a sense saying, you're foolish because don't you know your wealth is really temporary? It is something like rotten bananas or rotten tomatoes. They're just gone and they're rotten. Your wealth, it rots. And it's, it's have, they have rotted. And your garments are like garments that have been sitting in an attic for a long time with no care and no mothballs and a place exposed. And you come and you touch that garment that you loved and it withers because it's been moth-eaten. Your riches are like gold and silver, unfathomably, because gold and silver do not corrode, have corroded here. But what is the indictment? You've hoarded your wealth, he says in verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. These last days, this is the time in which Jesus may return. These are the last days as you wait for him and you live for him. You instead have laid up for yourselves and they are just rotting. They're rotting in your life. You're rich, you sit on them for your own security and your selfish pleasures and purposes. And, and in this passage, through these verses, he gives these like evidences that will damn them. Almost messengers who will go to the courtroom of heaven and say, this is evidence. You see that here, he says, that golden, that treasure that's corroding is evidence against you. It's sitting there, wasted, being hoarded up. Your rotting possessions and wealth you hoard will testify against you in the day of judgment. You remember what... This, this language here is what we think of in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gathered the crowds and he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also these Christians or non-Christians, whoever they are, whoever they are, and it can be us far too often, they're hoarding their wealth. They're sitting on it, wait, letting it waste, whether they're using it for their own pleasures or they're using it for their own future security. What if there's a hard time and I need it? Well, others are starving and hurting and you could help them but you're storing up your treasure on earth. 
Are we hoarding the wealth? Are we collecting and accumulating wealth as a means of our security at the expense of using the wealth that God has given to us, maybe the little leftover, to love our neighbors because we love God and trust him more? Friends, if we sit on our wealth and ignore giving for the sake of the gospel, whether it be in our church or across the world, if we collect our wealth at the expense of helping our brother and sister in need, if we save and invest only for leisurely retirement and care not for those around us with much less and in great need, we are laying up treasures that will not last. That is, the Bible has no commandment against saving. It's not wrong in many ways. It's wise. Some of the most generously godly people save and invest and they give. And they give as the foundational principle because they know all that they have has been given. And these people do not. Far too often, God-given riches of Christ, to Christians are rotting in recreational toys. They are like garments being consumed in moth-ridden attics of 401ks and savings accounts and are being corroded in the extravagance of living with little no sac- or no sacrifice and service to the work of God, the gospel and the help of the poor and needy. These are hard words for Americans. Easy to make a lot of exceptions. Yes, but David Ramsey said this. And advisors say this. And and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying his judgment on these people is that they have been given riches and they hoarded it for some reason and miseries are coming upon them. They didn't hoard it to invest in the kingdom of God, to bless others, to love God and love neighbor. The second indictment we find in verse 4. And the second one is the rich hurt others because of their greed. You see that in verse 4. The greed, you know, greed, the wrongful love of money, the wrongful love, the the desire where, where money or possessions grip your heart. Another old word is covetousness. It is desiring good things, but in a wrong way for the wrong reason, not for the glory of God, but for your own pleasure. Paul said that we are to put to death that which is earthly in us, including greed and covetousness, which he said is idolatry. We are loving money rather than God. We are finding in God our hope and satisfaction and security. And this passage in verse 4 He says this greed has led to you hurting other people. Here is a picture of those that are employers of many people in the harvest fields. And it says here in verse 4, Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, they worked for you, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying, you have laborers that work for you, and they're making you wealthy, and you have even held back your wages, maybe through some manipulating means, because you just could do it. You didn't need to. 
You could have given them maybe even more, or you could have paid them what they were owed, but you didn't. And maybe you'll get, it, get away with it in the law, but woe to you, your miseries are great, you better weep and howl. One of the great temptations of the wealthy is to use their gain, the more that they have, to ignore the needs of the poor and to easily exploit. And in the history of the world, we have, and in Bible times and in the history of the world, many, many have exploited the poor and the weak. And we would be foolish to think that if we had means and ability that just naturally we would be free of verse 4 indictment. He says here, there are two things that are being evidence against you. One, the wages that you have held back is like going up to God and saying, guilty. For us, it might be, you might not be an employing of somebody, but it might be the, what I've held back in giving to someone that I knew was in need, but I didn't do it. I could have or should have to these missionaries or to others that I just know are in a hard place. And instead, I did this all to feed myself. He says also the cries of the harvesters that have been exploited and defrauded, they cry and they reach the ears of the Lord, just like the Hebrews' cries to the Lord when they were in slavery in Egypt. The Lord heard their cries and answered and delivered. God does not turn a deaf ear. He will answer. He will bring justice. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. All those who do employ, who own businesses, we have a responsibility to not get the most we can get out of it, but to care for them to the glory of God. We care for those who are in need. Wealth can lead, covetousness leads to a carelessness in what we owe to our own advantage. Or love of money can lead to an insensitivity to the needs of others. I just wonder where in our lives riches can cause us to hurt and defraud others. Maybe, maybe not so obviously if, if you don't own a business, but maybe less obviously, but just as even. Where, remember last verse of last chapter in James when he says, For whoever knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Could it be that for a long time, God has been saying, I need to reorganize and reorient the way I look at this stuff, and we're not. And there are people who are not being ministered to in Africa or in Brazil or in India or Pakistan or Afghanistan because we didn't do that. Beware, rich people. Horrible judgment will come to you, he says, because you have let your greed keep you from loving the poor and those who work for you. Instead, you have been thoughtless and unjust. Now, in the, verse, the last verse of these passage, verse 6, he says, you have condemned 
and murdered the righteous person. That's the innocent person. He does not resist you. That could mean that he's saying, and it has to do with this in the court system, you have exploited even. You have maybe controlled with your wealth the courts, and so they were legally condemned against you. They were innocent, but you exploited it for your purposes, and you got off the hook, or you got what you wanted, and you defrauded them, and they couldn't even resist you. could mean that, and it's just a general, the, the, the righteous person is innocent Christians who are being exploited, even through the courts, and they have no say in this earthly life. It also could re- refer to possibly Jesus. He's making a reference to say, it's as though you are condemning and murdering the only righteous one who did not resist but went to the cross. Jesus did say, when you don't clothe, feed, care for the least of those around you, it's though you do it unto me. Let's look at the last indictment. He says here, the rich, number three, the rich use their wealth to indulge themselves. In verse five, the rich use their wealth to indulge themselves. I think we're all familiar with this because this is our hardwiring. We get more and we want to use it for our indulgences far too often. You have, look at verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I I didn't tell you this was a cheery passage. It's not. It gets good at the end because we read the whole Bible. Here he says, you use your wealth. And uh, we just all need to ask, Daniel, Pat's family, Faith Church family, you families, individuals, do I do this? Do I use my wealth to indulge myself? The God-given money, possessions, abilities, time, the ability to take more, make more money, all are being used, in this case, in verse 5, for luxury and self, selfish purposes. Oh, we have luxuries in this culture. The foods that we eat, the restaurants, the fashions, the beauty parlors, and the different things that we do and spend an entire amount of money, the way... We collect things that we don't need. This this verse, these verses ring with the words of Jesus. Let me remind you these words of Jesus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. He lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. I mean, he's at his gate. He could do anything to help Lazarus, but he doesn't help Lazarus. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22 of Luke 16, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, that poor man, at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, who is in, not in torment, to dip the end of my finger in water just to cool my tongue for just a second. For I'm in anguish in the flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Each of us should look in the mirror of that parable. Each of us should look at the mirror of God's word here and not walk away and say, I'm good. But we say, oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. Are you rich? Let me give you four concluding truths about riches and God's word and hopefully point you to a lot of hope. One, it is not a sin to be rich. Job was rich. Now, we know how things turned out for Job for a while. It did not go good for most of the book. It went really good for him at the end as God came to him and spoke truth to him. And at the very end of Job, he got really rich again. And we don't go, wicked Job, you're rich. It says in Job 42, 12, which James is going to quote or make a reference to Job in several verses later in James 5. But in Job 42, it says, The Lord blessed his later days of Job more than his beginning, and he had, and then he lists all his possessions, great wealth. It's not a sin to be rich. James is going to say, look at how God blessed and showed mercy and compassion to Job. Abraham was rich in the Old Testament. Solomon was very rich. He saw the vanity of his riches. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, as to those who are rich in this present age, this is what you're to do with your riches, but you are not to repent of being rich and to throw it all away. So it's not a sin to be rich. Number two, this is really important, and it might sound provocative. It is spiritually dangerous to be rich. I believe that. I believe it because of God's word is, I think, very clear. Let me say it another way. It's eternally dangerous to be rich. I'm I'm not saying... I'm, I'm going to say that's what Jesus said. He says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier than an eye to go through the uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter. Then, then how is it possible, Jesus? What's possible, what's impossible with man is possible with God. One commentator writes, there is no sin in being rich. But where sin exists among the rich, there are at least three things that are involved. One is how they got rich often was bad. Not everyone. And what they do with their riches can, lead, is sin, can be sinful. And here's one that's really big here. It is the spirit which tends to engender in the heart because of our riches. That's why when Paul writes to Timothy, and he's warning Pastor Timothy to instruct his church who had wealthy people and poor people in his church, he says, but remember, godliness with gain is great contentment. We, haven't take, we didn't come into the world with anything. We're not going to go out with anything. If we have food and clothing, we should be content. But those, listen, he says this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 8, 6, verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation 
into the snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It is common for us to say, oh, I would like to win that lottery. The Bible doesn't say that would be good for you to want that at all. God sometimes bestows wealth upon us through business or inheritance or from some other kind of fortune, but it is from God and it can be dangerous eternally and we need, it doesn't mean we throw it away, it means that we fall on our knees and say, oh God, I need your help because it can tear my heart apart and draw me away from you. And according to this, I could wander from the faith, I can be what he says in chapter 6, verse 17, I could put my hope in the uncertainty of riches and find myself really proud as I store up treasures in heaven and they're just worthless. Oh, we must be... I, I, just, I just finished reading the first book of The Lord of the Rings. And you don't have to know The Lord of the Rings to know there's just a ring that's really powerful and bad, and it is alluring. And it, in some ways, it can have almost an analogy of great wealth and power like we would want in, that, that riches can have. And this little insignificant hobbit is running around carrying it because he was chosen to carry it in order to destroy it so the enemy wouldn't use it for evil. And in time after time, these strong powerful beings who are good have been given the opportunity by Frodo. He says, why don't you take it? You'd be better off with it. And they go, no, because at first I might use it for good, but I don't trust myself because I could, I would just, it would, it would, I don't trust my heart. We should have that kind of, that doesn't mean we refuse the gifts that God's given to us, but it means that we're really careful I love what Moiter says. It's worth reading. Wealth threatens its possessors with coming misery. It's because this is what happens. Its earthly wealth, earthly cushioning, dulls us of the sense of spiritual urgency in coming judgment. Friends, our money, our wealth, our possessions can dull us. It can cushion us in order to think that all is well in our lives. And we don't have a spiritual urge, urgency and care for others. And there is going to be a divine judgment. Wealth opens the door of commercial carelessness and insensitivity to those who are both, we both do, have our due and are needful. It leads to us having hearts not to God. Notice in this passage, it doesn't say that about, the scriptures rarely talk about the great good you can do with wealth. It doesn't tell you, oh, you should pursue wealth because think of all the good you can do with it. Maybe because, and I read, the actual doing good still leaves those who are rich within the high risks. Remember I said it's dangerous. The high risks he has already outlined. Good may be done with all the implicit arrogance and the sense of, I'm kind of important because I help a lot of people. You are not. We are not important. The wealthiest are not important. Only God is. And he uses us. We should be generous, but no like, 
I'm not doing anything to be thanked in one sense. I'm just the messenger. i got to watch my heart because I could think of a lot of self-importance here. Oh, beware of the impact of wealth in our lives, of the accumulating of riches and toys and possessions for our own self-indulgences or our security. Oh, what impact it can make on our heart. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and serve the other. You cannot love God and money. You can't. You see, the third point I want you to see is it is about stewardship when you're rich. It's dangerous to be rich. I'm not saying if God's put that as your lot, be careful. Watch it. Have people in your life to keep you accountable. Care. But then it's, a, it's about stewardship when you're rich. God owns everything. If you are rich, if we are rich, even a little rich, even, even defined by more than I need, I am God's steward. That means I am his, he owns it. I am a manager of his possessions. Now, God, how do you want me to use what you have given to me to help others and to glorify you and in times to enjoy what you've given to me to your glory, but I need to be careful. When God prospers us, as Randy Elkhorn once said, he doesn't do it to raise our standard of living primarily, but to raise our standard of giving or as Brian McPhail Fossey, our missionary to Cameroon, has said, we need to be aware that we don't just enlarge our, our cup. When we get wealth, we go, okay, this was my cup. This, is, this cup held all the, all the things that I had and would do. Well, I, now I have wealthier so I can make it bigger and have more stuff, more possessions, more things. And, of course, because of that, I need to make more profit so I can maintain that cup. Instead... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do we do that? We do that by be doing what Paul said to Timothy to tell the rich. He says, don't be proud of your riches. He says, instead, you are to do, they are to do good. And they are to be rich in good works. They are to be ready and generous to share. I'm so, I'm not preaching at a miserly crowd here, by the way. I don't feel that way. You guys are, so many of you that I know are so loving and giving and caring and generous. I'm just preaching it because it's in the text and I know we all need it. Someday we will be like that, maybe we will be like that servant when the parable of the stewards. And God will give an account and say, what did you do with the possessions I gave you? Will he say, to us, you wicked servant. You should have at least taken it out of the tent that you buried under the ground and put it in a bank, at least got interest. Instead, you squandered it. You sat on it. You didn't do anything with it. Here's my last point, and I think it's foundational to all of this, and it's hope-giving. Friends, Jesus is our sure and only hope for all these things. And what I mean by this, our only hope is to be owned by the owner of all things if we're going to get through the danger of our wealth. If we're going to survive the, the, the dangerous predicament that we get when we have possessions, 
We need to be owned by one who owns everything and loves us and has given us. He needs to own me. He needs to own you. What I mean by that, he needs to control and take over. He is so generous and full of grace. In the gospel and all that the gospel brings, the only way that we will not be hoarders for our own security or defrauders for our own gain and avoiding self-indulgence is when Jesus is more precious than all those things that we try to grab onto. Only when the generous love of God grips us in Christ where our hearts are impacted and it shows us that he is our security, not our possessions. That he is our wealth, not our toys. That he is our satisfaction, not our savings accounts or our expense accounts or our cash inflow. He is everything. Only when we see riches as what they really are, they are God's way of testing, trying, and using us to funnel money for the sake of the kingdom of which we grow because we learn to bow our hearts before a God who is over all and owns all and loves us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor It's metaphorical. He went to the cross and he died and he took your sin so that you by his poverty, his death might become rich, rich in God. If you are in Christ, you are extremely wealthy. You are a child of the king of ages who owns all things. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And yours, you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. You're Christ's. You belong to Christ. You are his. He takes care of his own. He captures us and owns us in the most beautiful and glorious way. He comes and he shows us and he frees us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That all that we could give to others cannot compare to what he gives to us all of the time and then eternal life. Oh, it is not until we see Jesus as a treasure and the source of purest pleasure, great dearest friend to us, that we are able to say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. If I die, it doesn't matter. He is my king. It is the way we can sing like we're going to sing in a minute, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, how my inheritance now and always. Oh, If you don't know the riches that are in Christ through the gospel and being saved, I invite you to the greatest reality of which you were made for. It is to turn away from you and your riches and your ways and you run to Jesus, not because he will make you rich in this life, because he probably won't, because we can't handle that. But he will make you so rich in relationship to serve him forever, of which you will then say, 
It's what I was always made for. Worship team, would you come? Only when Christ is our treasure and the grace of God is a reality will we be able to keep from letting our wealth put a, puff us up with foolish pride and entitled mindsets of self-importance. And only when we know that we deserve hell and that we do not deserve our wealth will we be able to be in the condition to steward our possessions rightly. And only when our hearts are enriched by the one who gave himself for us will we see the uncertainty and inferiority of earthly wealth in compared to the surpassing wealth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. God, please help us to be what we could never be by ourselves. Own us. If we are saved, we're owned by you, but I just I ask experientially that you would own us. You would just capture our hearts I pray that we would die to our sin and selfishness. God, thank you for the, the wealthy people in this room. Protect us from what the wealth can do in our hearts. Protect us and help us to be good stewards. Thank you that there are so many in this room who are good stewards and giving and loving. And, and I, but I think we all need this. Help us to, help us to receive it in the context of your mercy and grace that is growing us and changing us. Be thou our vision, O oh God. Please, in Jesus' name, amen.